Welcome to the Walking Lessons Podcast. In today's episode, Nate begins our exploration of step four by describing the number one offender, resentment. And now, here's Nate Larkin. Hey, since we're talking in this class a lot about community and authenticity, why don't we spend a little bit of time talking honestly to each other? And I kind of, and I said how much I loved the question, and then I fumbled for some answers, and I said kind of like, at one point I said, you know, we tried that once in another Sunday school class, and hardly anybody came, and turns out everybody talks about community and authenticity, but most people really don't want it. They'd rather come and sit and listen than say anything. And then I said, by the way, I'm only here doing this for 16 weeks. It wouldn't be right to form community and then abandon it. I don't know what that was about. So anyway, uh, I, I just uh, have felt, I mean, I loved the question and I hated my answers. I don't know how many of you listen to audiobooks. Um, I just started a few years ago. And I, to me, I love them now. I don't have a lot of time to sit alone and read, but I, I walk a lot, and I can now get these audiobooks on my phone. And, and uh, so lately, I've been listening to the great courses. I don't know if anybody get the, gets those on Audible. Yeah, I love them. So they are, uh, you know, there's a choice of 150, 200, 300, I don't know, a lot of college courses, and you can download the lectures. So I listened to two this week. One was on the uh, physiology of the brain, and the other was on cosmology. Well, this brain one was interesting. We'll talk a little bit more about it later. This guy kind of got under my skin for a, a number of reasons. He's a, an evolutionary biologist, this professor. Thoroughly convinced that natural selection explains all of life. And really very strong on that subject. So he is quite certain that he not only understands how the brain works, but how it got to be that way. As he tells the story of evolutionary biology, he said, you know, it's the brain uh, and one capacity of the brain, he says, that explains this, the survival of the human species. He says, when you look at it, it's kind of weird. We don't have claws, we don't have fangs, our thermal exchange rate really stinks. Uh, how is it that we not only survived, but made it to the top of the predatory pyramid? And he said, the reason is not explained, he said that, you know, our dominance is not explained, as some people have suggested, by our ability to make and use tools or by our facility with language. So he made a case that the reason we are who we are is that we have a capacity, a human and, and unique capacity to make friends, to form communities, to make arrangements for our mutual benefit, to look out for each other and to work together cooperatively in a way that no other species had. Now, that is, there's a lot of this guy's reasoning that I don't buy, but I, there was that part of the argument I liked. I do know this in my own experience, and you hear it if, if you come to hear me talk in a recovery setting, it, I'll inevitably always come around to community. A human being alone will eventually perish. Left only to our own resources, we all are going to be overwhelmed by a hostile environment. We do not have, none of us has, all by ourselves, what we need to survive and thrive. Uh, as I've probably said in here, I've come to the conclusion that I am a colossal failure as a solo disciple for the very simple reason that Jesus doesn't have any solo disciples. 
we can only follow him together. That's what this is all about. That's what church is about. That, that Greek word ekklesia means gathering. It's, this, is a, this is a cooperative thing. So Jesus came to reconstitute the family of God, to reconcile us to God and to each other. And the great command to us, I mean, our job as Christians is pretty simple. Love God and love each other. And in order to begin my journey of recovery, I had to be willing to come out of isolation, give up this dream of moral self-sufficiency, drop my demand that God give me a private solution to my private problem, become willing to join the human race, the family of God, and become another bozo on the bus to give not just my strength but my weakness. That being said, I think if the church becomes, or if our church gatherings become only solely a time that's focused on one person and limited to the wisdom of one person. We don't have the opportunity really then to experience all that God has for us, the strength that, and wisdom that he gives to all of us together, what, what our experience can be collectively, which is why this uh, class I think is a remarkable, it gives us, it's an opportunity. It's not like we have a thousand people in the room. You know, we got what, 25 people in the room this morning, something like that. Well, as I told you, I uh, listened to those two college lectures, uh, courses this week, one on brain physiology and one on cosmology. The professor teaching the brain course drove me crazy, mainly because he, was, he just came off as a real know-it-all, like really, really arrogant and very dismissive of any alternate viewpoint, very much a materialist doesn't believe there's a soul, believes that mind is simply a product of the brain. I know enough science and enough of alternate opinions to know that you could at least acknowledge that there are other ways of looking at it, but this guy wouldn't even do it. I mean, he came off as really a know-it-all. Although he made fun of early stages of ignorance. You know, before we understood all that we know about now about the brain, at one point he said, you know, Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine, thought that um, hysteria comes from a wandering womb. And that's where the word comes from. Hyster is the Greek word for the uterus. A hysterectomy is the removal of the uterus. So, which he said is why only women are crazy. Okay? Uh, <laughs> that's right. Terrible, terrible. And the solution, by the way, the solution, by the way, to hysteria in those days was just to get pregnant and have a kid. And somehow that was supposed to help. Yeah. Yeah. No. Does not help. Yeah. The other course that I took, I just loved. In fact, I loved it so much I started listening to it again today. It's called The Inexplicable Universe. Uh, just six lectures. And the main point of this course is that, you know, while we do know a lot about our world and about the universe, what we do know pales in comparison to what we do not know. You know, when you stop and think about it, you know, there was a time when we believed, for example, that, and we believed, we thought we believed for biblical reasons, because it seems like the Bible describes it this way, we believed that the earth is the center of everything, that everything revolves around the earth. And then, you know, Copernicus offered this crazy theory that maybe the Earth revolves around the sun. Galileo did some experiments, wrote a book embracing it, and paid a heavy price. So Galileo actually is brought up on charges. 
is forced to recant before Pope Urban the Eighth in 1633, and then is put under house arrest. He's 70 years old. He's forced to recant on his knees. This heretical notion spends the last nine years of his life under house arrest, and then. In 1992, more than 350 years later, the church finally corrected the record and said, oh, by the way, well, we were wrong and Galileo was right. And then we thought that like the solar system is it. And then we got better telescopes and we saw that other planets have moons and then beyond our solar system are other solar systems. And while we do have this sun, it's an amazing thing. It really is kind of an average sized star. And we came to recognize that we're within a galaxy, this amazing galaxy. And for a while, that was it. This is the galaxy. And it's got billions of bodies in it. And then fairly recently, Carl Hubble, you know, <laughs> kind of goes a little further and we come to understand our galaxy is just one of billions of galaxies. It's not even the biggest, it's kind of an average galaxy. So now we're in the universe. But then there's a whole lot about the universe that does not make sense. We now know, we can infer there's, there is more to this universe than we can see. We can tell that there's a lot more because of the effect that it has on what we can see. But here's the crazy thing. Right now, I mean, I, I double-checked this today online because it seems so crazy, but I, I sourced it in three different places. What, what, what we're saying right now is, okay, we've got the, like, the standard model. Uh, we've got two standard models, one that understands the big world, the universe, everything that's out there. And all our perception of that was changed by Albert Einstein and we now have a way of understanding that energy equals mass and that there is this space-time continuum. It's phenomenal. And then we have quantum mechanics, this way of looking at the small world, the tiny world, that subatomic world. It's not as simple as I was told when I was in elementary school, you know, that atoms are just, you know, they're like little solar systems. Well, now we know that there are all kinds of subatomic particles. Here's a crazy thing. Most of space is empty. Most of tiny space is empty. You want to know how big a proton is in comparison to an atom? If you put a BB on the pitcher's mound at Yankee Stadium, Yankee Stadium is the atom. The BB is the proton. That's about the right scale. But in between, here's the crazy thing. We can't figure out, the, the, it appears that the rules that govern the big universe and the rules that cover the little universe don't match. They don't match. It just does not gel. Mathematicians, mathematicians took the rules that they'd learned in the small universe to apply to the big universe when we discovered in 1992 the expansion of the universe is not slowing as we thought it had to because of gravity. It's actually speeding up. We tried to figure it out by applying the rules we learned down here to that world. And, and turns out the calculations are off by a factor of 10 to the 23rd. Doesn't work. 
So now what we say is that we're not talking about universes anymore because apparently this universe, there must be a multiverse is what we're saying now. What we can see and measure comprises about 5% of what is. 68% of what is is what's now called dark energy. It's not mass, it's energy, but we can't measure it. We can see that it has an effect on what we can see, but we don't know what it is or what it does. And 27% is what's called dark matter. Again, we know it's there. And um, there are so many more dimensions to reality than the, than the four, the, the three, now the four, that we experience and measure. So I love this course because the, the closing line, the professor's closing line is, what if the human intellect is not capable of comprehending the questions we are smart enough to ask? The answers to the questions we are smart enough to ask. What makes us think that where we are now is the limit of knowledge? That's why to listen to that guy and then to listen to this brain scientist and his certainty that he's got all the answers and every explanation, and he's ruling out the existence of spiritual reality. Very striking contrast to me. Do you have a willingness to learn and openness to new information? Are you willing to ask difficult questions and keep a complete open mind about the answers? I think that willingness is absolutely essential to recovery. It's interesting to me that when I got going on my step work with my sponsor, uh, one of my earliest sponsors, and I've told you this before, you know, I'm focused on my sexual addiction, my sexual behavior. I just want to straighten that out. I'm sure that's my problem, right? I remember the day that my sponsor said, you know what, I think your biggest problem, your biggest obstacle right now is your pride and what you need more than anything else is humility. Now, understand this. I had mastered the art of false modesty because that was, uh, it was really required. It was a survival mechanism when I was growing up. You couldn't show pride. So I learned false modesty. I learned it so effectively that I actually thought I was a humble person. But at the same time, <laughs> it was very clear to somebody outside me who was not me, right, that I'm just full of intellectual arrogance. Allie experienced it every day. The, the dismissive way I treated her, uh, the way I just disregarded almost anything she had to say, and my defensiveness around that. So he, one of the first assignments he gave me was he gave me the, the book, The Twelve and Twelve, The Twelve Steps and Twelve Traditions. And he said, I want you to read chapter 7. It starts on page 70, and it goes to page 77. And it's about humility. Read it every day. And I read that chapter every day for, I think, almost a year. Slowly, slowly, slowly began to get the message that we don't make any progress at all until we're willing to admit that we're not there, that we're far from there. We won't accept new information until we're willing to accept that we need new information, until we stop defending what we already believe, our own self-concept. We've got to be able to be learners.
and searchers. We're now at that point here in this course where we've talked about step one, an admission that we're powerless over something and that it has made our lives unmanageable. We talked about step two where we have come to believe uh, that there is a power greater than ourselves that can restore us to sanity. You can see how some humility is required there, right? I have to at least step off the throne of God and allow that there might be at least one power in the universe greater than myself, right? And then step three, make a decision, first decision I have to make to turn my life and my will over to the care of God. Now I've got to believe that he's actually benevolent, that there is somebody who cares about me as much as I do, and who will look out for me. I don't always have to be looking out for myself. And that he can restore me to sanity, and that is implicit, the admission that I'm insane, and I need somebody to bring things back square, right? Well, now we're up to, um, to step four, which is, can be a very terrifying step, but here's what I know in recovery from and understand I'm very much still on a, this recovery continuum. I'm not speaking to you as an expert, just somebody who's kind of been on this road for a little while. Here's what I've noticed. The people for whom recovery has stuck, what's taken, what's really changed their lives, are the people who've made it all the way through step four. This is the pivot point. Everything else is preface. Step four is terrifying unless you believe the gospel, you really have to grasp the gospel in order to do step four. Because step four chips away at all our self-righteousness. Step four is this, made a fearless and searching moral inventory of ourselves. A fearless and searching moral inventory. A very long and detailed look in the mirror searching not just for um, our assets, but for our liabilities. I love the word inventory. And in the, in the 12 and 12, uh, Bill W., I think in a very helpful way, kind of compares it to a retail business. He says, hey, business that doesn't conduct inventory from time to time isn't gonna stay in business very long. It's gonna think it has what it doesn't, some goods are gonna have drifted away, some may have been stolen, some have gone bad with time, some have become unsaleable. He needs to be able to get rid of that stuff. He's gotta find out what he actually lacks, he or she. So that's what this is about. Now understand, when I first entered recovery, I thought that my list of liabilities was pretty short. I mean, I had this sexual thing going on that I had to straighten out. I did not fully understand, and I'm sure still don't understand. I love, I got to, one of the weekends we were away, I got to do a conference with Scotty. And, uh, you know, he had this great line that I just loved where he said, Jesus died not just for the 4% of your sin that you know, but for the 96% you've never seen, right? Um, all that dark energy and dark matter you're measuring what you can measure, but it's a very small percent of what's real. And he died for it all. And, by the way, I was so conditioned by shame and self-hatred that once I committed to recovery, once I put myself in porn prison or whatever it was, I just kind of turned myself in. It was the first time I did a step four. I wrote uh, a federal indictment of myself in which I had absolutely no assets at all. 
I'd never done anything right. The image of God was completely obliterated in that indictment that I wrote of myself and then, you know, and did my best. So, you know, the first time I read a step four to a sponsor when I got done, he looked at me and he said, well, I suppose some of that's pretty accurate. He was an old Tennessee guy. He said, be nice when you can, when you can say it without so much shame. That was kind of a good thing. Now here's the thing, when you come to step four, if you're working with a sponsor, if you're in 12-step, you come to step four, there's kind of the, there's this accumulated wisdom within 12-step circles that says if you want to look for your defects, for the liabilities, the things that have really been driving your insane behavior, there are kind of some high probability places to look. Good chance that you're going to find something here. And among, at least among addicts, among alcoholics and sex addicts I know, and I think most addicts, there's this phrase, you'll hear it a lot in 12-step circles, resentment is the number one offender. So very often, what um, has triggered our behavior in the beginning, what tends to drive and excuse our behavior, uh, are resentments. And so typically, when you get going on a step four, a sponsor is going to encourage you to start uh, to build a resentment list, to start actually to put these things on paper. Now resentment, it, it comes from a Latin word, uh, the same word that gives us sentient, sentile, that Latin is for sentile, for, means to feel, right? So we are sentient beings, that means we're conscious, we can feel. So to resent is to what? Feel again. Okay, to resent is to feel again. I don't know, I'm continually amazed now by the way technology has affected sports. You know, when I was a kid, there was no such thing as review of an official's call, right? The call was the call. If it was a bad call, it was a bad call, and you know, you just screamed at the ump or the ref or whatever, but it was over, it was done. There was no appeal. Well now, in the NFL, in the NHL, in the NBA, I mean, every, even tennis, everybody. College football, I guess, is doing it, right? You can appeal, uh, a coach can appeal uh, the call of an official based on what? Instant replay, right? So we can go back and we can review the shot. So here's what we do. All of us have this ability to do kind of instant replay. And some of us have refined this to an art. We kind of have these key moments throughout our lives in which we have been the victims of injustice or abuse or unkindness when we've been hurt, right? And we've got that in video. Now here's the amazing thing, you watch instant replay, you, you know, it happens, especially like a big hit in football. It, so there's an appeal, and now we're waiting for, and meanwhile, the commentators keep playing the clip. And they keep slowing it down and slowing it down. Have you noticed the slower it gets, the worse it looks? It's like, oh! And sometimes it makes it to the highlight reels, and you're going to see that thing for years, right? Boom! Well, that's what some of us do. We've got these moments when, when we were abused or we were neglected or, you know, some terrible thing has happened, some painful experience. 
And we saved the film. And um, we like to play it. There's kind of a, a perverse kind of comfort in that. Just kind of remember how badly we were betrayed. How unjust it really was. How much it hurt. And really, the more we play it, kind of the more it hurts. I had a long string of those when I came into recovery. It's not as though none of that ever happened. But it is as though I couldn't get past it. Here's the thing about these resentments that we kind of save up and, 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 and continue to replay. First of all, they anchor us to the past. Can't very well write a new story because we're so tied to that one. We keep coming back to that one. Secondly, it can uh, trigger these feelings of abandonment. It can drive us to self-soothing behavior that's ultimately self-destructive if we can't let go of it. It can blind us, by the way, to the capacity of other people to change. If the only highlight that I'm going to play of somebody else's life of what, is what they did to me 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago, then I can't see who they are now. Uh, one of my great regrets is that um, very, very early in recovery, see, here's the thing. When I first got into recovery, my, uh, and I started, started doing my, my fourth step, the sponsor wanted me to do a resentment list. And my first response was, I don't have any resentments. And I really thought that was true because, to me, anybody who carries a resentment is weak and unspiritual, not very highly spiritually evolved. I'm a forgiving person. I'm Saint Nate. I'm not, I've never been angry at anyone. I don't resent anyone. If you want me to tell the story of my victimhood, I can do that. And that story was pretty well refined. But when I had to begin to own my resentments, I started to tap into a very, very deep resentment that I carried against my dad. Uh, you know, the, the man who had failed to, to, to live up to all my expectations. By the way, a lot of our resentments are born of our own expectations. And, you know, there's that great line, an expectation is merely a premeditated resentment. Not to say that, that you know, the, the pain that I felt was not legitimate, most of it was, but at any rate, but I had this deep anger against my dad. And one of my great regrets is that very early in recovery, without asking my sponsor about it, without getting any advice from anybody, I wrote this long, very angry letter to my father. And I'd been out of the house for 30 years. I wrote this. And, and I just nailed them. Now, it was okay to write the letter. It was not okay to mail the letter. I mailed it. And my dad, God bless him, he never responded except to say, I'm sorry. Uh, my stepmom rose to his defense. You know, now a few more years behind me, a, a little more cognizant of my own good intentions and abject failures as a father. Dealing with some of those resentments and being able to recognize the changes that my father did make and to appreciate his care for me. I don't have those 
deep resentments any longer. A lot of it's come with my own healing. But I carried a lot of resentment. And we can resent not only people, we can resent institutions that do not behave the way we think they should, uh, that have been cold toward us. We can resent God. We certainly can resent God. And in order to um, free ourselves, to be able to actually make progress, to leave those anchors behind, to cut ourselves free, uh, there are two things that are required. Forgiveness and healing. What doesn't work is denial. What doesn't work is just saying, okay, well, uh, I'm just not going to think about it anymore. I don't care, it's over. It's done. Boom! Even God is not capable of doing that. That's why when we sinned, God was not able to say from his place in heaven, okay, forget about it. It's over, it's done, I'm never going to think about it, it's done. Even God couldn't do that. God himself had to experience the anger of our betrayal, had to pour out his wrath on his son. Forgiveness came through pain. One of the pieces of advice that I routinely give to guys who come to me after being discovered in infidelity, married guys, is to tell them, Brother, for now, your job is to allow your wife to be, your main job is to allow your wife to be as angry as she needs to be for as long as she needs to be angry. What you do not want is quick forgiveness, because quick forgiveness is not forgiveness at all. It's denial. It's just burying that pain. And if she does that, it's just going to simmer. It's going to turn into resentment. It's going to poison your relationship forever. She's got to be angry in order to forgive. I remember, you know, as Allie is coming to terms with my infidelity, remember at one point, I mean, I'm doing my, everything I can to try to be sweet and nice, and, and I hadn't begun to feel Allie's pain, but I'm starting to be sweet. At one point, I said, I started, I said something to her. I said, honey, and she, she turned on me. <laughs> she said, don't call me honey. Don't call me sweetie. I have a name, she said. My name is Allie. If you would like to speak to me, use my name. And, and can you believe how tough it was for me to actually learn to call my wife by her name? Well, it's a very healthy thing for me to learn to do. I had actually, I think, I think I'd use those terms of endearment as a ways to kind of objectify her and not deal with her humanity and identity as a person like me. It was really weird for the next year or two, always to call her Allie. These days I can call her honey again, but I also call her Allie a lot. But that was very healthy, that Allie, she was owning her anger. And I think it's only because Allie has been willing to own her anger that she's been able actually to forgive. And uh, she doesn't carry a resentment against me that I'm aware of or I think that she's aware of these days. But that comes through, um, you know, it's not, an, it's not an instant thing. And I don't think it can be done without God's uh, sovereign hand. I do believe we forgive because we've been forgiven. 
And sometimes God will just, if we ask Him to, He can relieve us of these resentments if we just take our hands off them. I'm tired of carrying this. I'm tired of, of going back to this false comfort all the time. I'm, 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 I'm tired of what it does to me. I would like a new story, but I can't get free of it. Would you please take it away? And that may, it's likely it may also, if you've been injured in that. Now sometimes, you know, the pain that we carry, the way we've been treated by other people, it's only after we get a little bit of recovery in this repentance process that we notice that people were angry at us because we'd stepped on their toes and they retaliated. We were unfeeling and unthinking and uncaring, and that's why we got what we got. Sometimes that's the case, and it's helpful for us to acknowledge and repent of that, and then it makes forgiveness a little bit easier. Sometimes what we got was none of our fault at all. We had nothing to do with it. It was just plain cruelty or indifference or injustice. I remember running into a friend of mine a few years ago, a guy who I knew, uh, a recovering sex addict had become a therapist, and, a, and I'd heard good things about it. I hadn't seen him in a few years, and I ran into him out in public someplace, and I said, man, how's it going? You know, he says, man, it's really good. He says, you know, probably worked with about a thousand sex addicts so far, he said, and he says, and doing a, doing a lot of trauma work. And I went, yeah, addiction and trauma, they go together sometimes. And he stopped, and he looked at me, and he said, no. He said, they go together always. And that really opened a door for me to help me recognize that at the root of addiction, there is always a trauma. And that's why it's helpful, in addition to doing the kind of work that we discuss here, uh, doing the step work, certainly praying, also to take advantages of the other gifts that God gives us, especially within this community, the healing gifts that can help us process traumatic experience. Sometimes what we really need in order to break away from this thing that, that has us is to get some healing from the pain. That traumatic event, whatever it was, was overwhelming. We were not able to process it. And it has stayed there. It's never been resolved. We've found ways to work around it. Whenever we get close to it or anybody else gets us close to it, the fear comes up, it triggers, and we begin to act in irrational ways. It could be that our addictive behavior, sometimes our addictive behavior is avoidant. I'll go there rather than go to that painful place. Sometimes it's just sedative. This hurts, I'll go get, some, I'll numb out somehow. That's why it's very, very helpful to get some help in healing. And that can come in a lot of ways. It can ha actually come here it, and, and in group and in conversations with another person. You know, we are uh, counseled in Scripture to carry one another's burdens, to uh, mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep, and rejoice with those who rejoice. Sometimes that healing can come just in talking about it with somebody else not with the aim of deriving some comfort from renewing an awareness of our victimization, but by entering into the grief and the pain with a desire to walk through it. But we can't walk through it on our own. It's too big. But other people can help us walk through it to grieve well so that we can leave the grief behind.
A skilled therapist can do it, a skilled counselor. And there are other tools these days. I'm going, Allie has, has done uh, a, a number of sessions of EMDR. I'm doing it myself. There's an, uh, and a, now a variant of it called brain spotting we're going to start up. Anything that can help, uh, help us to process that traumatic, uh, the effect of, the, the biological effect of trauma on the brain that then uh, plays itself out in behavior. So yes, it's about forgiveness and it's about healing. So I leave you with this suggested assignment for the week. Make a resentment list. I challenge you to see how many people you can put on it. Okay? How many people or institutions might you resent? And might that habit of refeeling be tying you to a past you're trying to escape? Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Walking Lessons Podcast. We want to hear from you. Please email your comment or question about today's lesson to walkinglessons at gmail.com or join the Walking Lessons page on Facebook. We'll see you next week.